0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening. Of course, as you might have guessed, we're going to continue our Church Reborn series and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, as we find the Apostle Paul waiting on his companions to reunite with him in Athens, Greece. That's a name that's probably familiar to you or a place that you've at least heard of before. And we may not often think about it, but even now, everywhere we look, we can find some influence of the Greeks, of Greek philosophy, of architecture, politics, or science in our modern American life. In fact, the columns right outside of this church represent the architecture of the Greeks from something called the Doric or Ionic style that Greece prominently displayed on many of their structures and their grand buildings. Go a little farther, libraries containing thousands of volumes of literature on almost every subject were established by the Greeks first in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, while they were under Greek rule. Modern politics in many ways is heavily influenced by Greece with the idea of democratic decision-making and elections, individual city-states, and the rule of law, where everyone knows the laws and the law is posted. Now, much of our math with geometry and calculus, we can also give credit to the Greeks. The idea of standardized medical care and the idea that emerges from the Hippocratic Oath of to above all else do no harm has been brought to us by Greek culture. And we could go on and on and list countless other examples, but Greece has arguably influenced the Western world more than any other civilization, despite the fact that Greece's pinnacle had already passed as Paul Stood in Athens. And in this way, it's easy for us to imagine the lowly apostle here, standing in this great crib of Western thought, looking around at all of the sites, all of the people, and being stirred into action. The book of Acts, as we've talked about, written by Luke, who's the same author of the Gospel of Luke, records the acts of the Holy Spirit of God, the first great missionary movements of the early church, and many events in the life of the great, although initially hostile, apostle Paul. Paul of Tarsus, and this event that we're reading today takes place on Paul's second missionary journey. Paul took three missionary journeys that we know of, and like ripples that expand from the point of impact on the water, the gospel of Jesus Christ had spread from Jerusalem, and now it was in this great renowned city of Athens. And so the Apostle Paul finds himself alone, albeit temporarily, after leaving a place called Berea, which we spoke about last week. And he's waiting for his companions, Timothy and Silas. Now, Timothy is not biologically related to Paul, but he's a young man who Paul loved ever so dearly. In fact, Paul would call him in his personal letter to Timothy, his true son in the faith. And while Paul is there exploring the city, Luke records the following information. This is from Acts 17, beginning down in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, remember, them are his traveling companions, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, we'll revisit this story and finish it up in just a moment, but I will say that normally, and most of you are familiar with this, that the way I structure my messages is I immediately kind of go into a verse-by-verse exposition of sorts after reading. But today I'm going to kind of intertwine the exposition with the application, which I normally say for the end of the message. And the reason is this. The reason I'm doing that is this. I believe how Paul responded to this situation serves as a model for how we must be willing to respond to what we see in today's world. Now, the setting may be different. The names ascribed to the idols may seem eons removed from what we read about with the Apostle Paul. But if we will allow our minds to focus on the reality of the situation and the type of environment that Paul was in, I think that we can, with hardly even trying, draw many parallels to Paul's moment in Athens and into the culture and in the environment that we live in today. And the first thing that we notice about Paul's response to this is that he had a troubled soul. The opening line of this narrative tells us Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. Now Athens was a remarkable city. And we've already talked about how its influence has affected much of our lives in America today. It was the cradle of Western civilization. It was the birthplace of democracy. The ballot you cast for local representatives, you can credit Athens, Greece. The university where a lecturer imparts knowledge and thought-provoking questions are asked and explored, you can thank Athens, Greece. In fact, you can specifically thank one of their great philosophers, a man by the name of Socrates. And I'll bring that back up here in just a moment. But Paul would have been here... During the first century AD, although the city here in Athens, Athens, Greece, had fallen from its apex of greatness, that had occurred about 500 to 600 years earlier, it was still a hugely influential hotbed of cultural influence and activity. But despite all of its social influence, Athens was a city consumed by false religion. At the highest points of the city, this was a common practice geographically, at the highest points of the city, temples were built to honor their gods. And countless idols were sold in the marketplaces of all of these different gods. Strange practices often occurred in and around the temple themselves, which I'm not going to mention on this platform. And it's been remarked that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a person. And when the Apostle Paul looked around at all of these temples, all of the perversiveness, all of the sensuality, all of the hedonism, all of the pining after gods made of wood, stone, and metals, his spirit was stirred within him. He was troubled. And we learn a lot about our priorities when we consider what troubles us. Paul was troubled here by the idolatry that he saw surrounding him in Athens, and You know, we often have this conversation here at this church about worldviews. I talk about this very often, and it's so important that you have a worldview and our children and our grandchildren and our students have a worldview with which to tackle the world. And, of course, our hope and prayer is it's a Christian worldview rooted in biblical truth, that faith in Christ is not merely one aspect of our life or a single nail to hang our hats on or even the number one thing in our life. But it is a complete worldview with which we respond to all of life, both here and in eternity. We are born again into a new life. It's right there in the Bible, one of the most famous exchanges in the Bible, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, between Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus. Jesus says, you must be born again. And after becoming a Christian, we must learn to think biblically about all aspects of our life. Questions like, how does my faith in Christ affect the way I talk to people? How does it affect the way I view people who are different from me? How I work at my job and the type of performance I have? How do I love my wife and my children? All of these things under the umbrella of a Christian worldview. And genuine faith also takes away pretense and false notions. What do I mean by that? Well, by all accounts, Athens was an incredible city. Even today, Athens is synonymous with intellectual thought, with cultural influence, with philosophy, with literature, and yet despite the grandeur that was there, Paul was troubled. He could have easily been mystified by all that he saw, yet he was troubled. He wasn't deceived by materialism. He wasn't deceived by wealth and the allurement of power or, and this is crucial, this is crucial, the fact that it seemed that everyone else in that city was in hearty agreement with the lifestyle that was dominant in the culture. You know the most dangerous philosophy that has invaded almost every aspect of our contemporary society from the White House to the kitchen table is the idea of relative truth. Relative truth. What do I mean by that? We need to know. Simply stated it's the idea that what's true for you may not be true for me. And that truth is based almost entirely on personal preferences and desires. It's the belief that there is no absolute truth, except for the truth, that there is no absolute truth. And often it goes like this. All religions lead to God or salvation. Just pick one or pick none, and it'll all somehow work out in the end. Have whatever relationship you want with whomever you want. Love is love. And if you come across a figurative fence post that has been established by a nation or a people group, bulldoze it down and pave a new path without even asking why that fence was put there in the first place. Make your own decisions, we say. I'm not here to judge you. You'll get no judgment from me. And just believe. Believe in yourself, and you can do or be anything you want to do or be. You know, not too long ago, I was at a graduation ceremony at a very large university, And a person of great prominence in the university made a comment that I just couldn't shake because it highlights this point so incredibly well. She was talking primarily to a group of students who were about to graduate. In fact, the only thing left for them to do was to turn their tassels to the other side of their cap. And, of course, she was speaking with their families. And she said that when students start at this university, parents often ask, when their student is a freshman, what they can do with the degree That they're working toward and her response sort of whimsically with her hands up in the air was well they can do anything they want anything they want to do as if a degree in teaching school would allow you to work in quantum physics or a spanish degree would allow you to be a mechanical engineer she couldn't possibly actually believe that it was ridiculous and it doesn't conform to reality But a coliseum full of thousands of people largely gave affirming head nods at her statement and applauded the comment because why? It made them feel good. I've often said that the song that people will sing in hell will be, I did it my way. And I'll add, if hell has a slogan plastered over its gates, it will be the spirit of the age today, you do you, you do you. And I know we want to try to be positive, but I know that we can also sometimes gaze at our beloved country and we can see the apathy, the sexual immorality, the complacency, the families who will crawl halfway across the country on shards of glass to get their kid to a sporting event or work overtime at their job, but dismiss church with hardly a second thought. And in my own heart, I'm troubled. By my lack of concern for fellow people who do not truly love, love Christ and know Christ, as I often myself personally hobble through the days without a sincere mission or sense of purpose. But Paul gives us a model here. You know, he could have easily just focused on the negative, at the sights, the sounds, and the actions that bothered him. But Paul did something more. Paul didn't just stop at being troubled. He was provoked. You know, there's a difference. We can be troubled, and rightly so, but there's also a call to respond, and Paul responds here. His troubled spirit prompted him into action. You know, being troubled can prompt us into that action. It's why God gives us that emotion, and so let's examine what he does. Well, Luke says in the scripture that we read that he reasoned with the people. He meets them where they are. He meets them in their synagogues, which would have been his fellow Jews. And then he meets them in the marketplace, which would have been a mixture of people, primarily Gentiles, which we've spoken a lot about, which were non-Jewish, non-Jewish people. And the word reasoned here in this context means to discuss or to debate. And Luke gives us some insight in Acts 17 to how Paul approached this engagement with people. So in addition to just reasoning with them, he explained things. He opened the Scriptures to them. He proved or he responded to objections to to present the validity of the things that he claimed from the Bible, from the message of Christ. And he proclaimed a clear message. And then he persuaded people, this is why you ought to believe This message, this is why you ought to trust in Christ. And consequently, many joined the faith through the working of the Holy Spirit in this moment. And we shouldn't overlook that Paul started in the synagogue. We know from the rest of the book of Acts that this is his pattern of starting with the Jews and sharing the gospel with the Jews. And I think it's interesting that the first and primary place to proclaim God's truth of the gospel is to those attending in corporate worship. You know, we sometimes erroneously think that the church is the primary building of evangelism. And while it's certainly great, and the gospel certainly should be shared within these walls, meeting together in the church primarily is for believers, for those who are have already come to faith in Christ. And we are equipped then to go out and to minister to people and to share the gospel and to share the truth. And that is what was happening here as Paul goes first to the corporate places of worship. But then he also goes to the marketplace. And we're not given a lot of details here, but it seems that Paul used something called the Socratic method. You may recall me mentioning just a moment ago a famous Greek philosopher named Socrates. And the Socratic method here provided a whimsical coincidence of the method that was pioneered by this man of just sitting and dialoguing, discussing, discussing. Presenting questions about the gospel and then going back and forth with question and answer. People would sit around in a less structured forum and they would provide insight and thoughts and opinions on a topic that was being discussed. Often a topic would be brought up or presented by someone and they These people would uh, sit around or stand around and they would essentially start arguing about this topic. So somebody would bring up a word, bring up a phrase, and they would start arguing. Sometimes in the modern world, we call this marriage. But on a serious note, one of the best ways to engage with God's truth is to ask questions. You know, I've had some conversations with people And if I see that perhaps God has opened an opportunity, I'll ask something like, do you have any kind of spiritual belief? Or do you ever think about God? How do you view the world? What is your source of hope? You know, I found that generally people like talking about themselves. And when we get people talking about themselves and we show an interest in their lives, on our part, it demonstrates humility. It's a desire to build a relationship with someone, to create dialogue, to build bridges and to open doors. And perhaps in doing this, we can gently just put a pebble in a person's shoe, get them thinking about things with something that sticks with them to create opportunities to share the gospel that you and I may never see. And here in Acts 17, we're given two specific groups that Paul engages with, a group called the Epicureans and a group called the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans are interesting. They were not complete That would just be people that live for nothing but pleasure. So they're not complete hedonists, but they did enjoy life's pleasures. Eating good food, wearing nice clothes, listening to good music. Life was largely about pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we might die was kind of their philosophy. And the Stoics were a little different in terms of their spiritual beliefs. They believed in an impersonal force in the universe. They thought God, if you wanted to use that designation, was not, was not knowable, and that life was merely fatalistic. Whatever happens, happens. It is what it is. Whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera sort of thing. And there was some intrigue here. They were listening to Paul about the different things that he was saying with his message, but then they call him an idle babbler. The actual translation here is a seed picker. That's kind of an idiom that is lost on us today, but it was the idea of birds that just kind of go around and they pick up random seeds and kind of pick at them for a moment and then cast them aside. So they kind of viewed Paul that way, that what he was presenting, what he was talking about was just sort of like picking up seeds and scattering them around everywhere. They thought they were going to hear something new. But Paul was instead going to introduce them to the timeless truth of God's redemptive plan. So Paul had been given an inaugural hearing in the synagogues and in the marketplace, and now they wanted something more. So they take it to the next level, and they invite him to a place called the Areopagus. So this is the Areopagus address that we're going to get to in just a moment in verse 22. And as I mentioned earlier, the highest points of the city, temples, were built just thinking that that was closer to the heavens where the gods dwelled. And in this instance, about 220 feet away from the Parthenon, which is a very famous Mm -hmm. Athenian temple, another place, another temple had been built to the Greek god of war, Ares. And it was built on a hill, and in Greek that's a pagos. So we have Ares. Areopagus, Ares, heel. And some translations, particularly if you're looking at the King James Version this morning, may say Mars heel because Mars was the Roman god of war. Ares was the Greek god of war. Mars was the Roman god of war. So they're somewhat synonymous. But in any case, here's what happens in verse 22 of Acts chapter 17. Let me grab my Bible here as we look at this. Pardon me here. And in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Now Paul does several things here. One, he compliments the people. He doesn't start with harsh accusations, he compliments them. He says that they he perceived that they were very religious. Now it was almost funny as he would say this with the thousands and thousands of idols that were there, but he said it. They were pious. There was a desire for spiritual truth, perhaps, but it had been corrupted and it had been misplaced. And then he brilliantly, brilliantly presents the gospel. He quotes some of their own Greek poets. And he is understanding how to hit the different nuances of the many beliefs of his listeners. Most scholars believe that this was an outline of what Paul would have presented at the Areopagus. It just took us a minute or two to read it, obviously. A typical address would have taken much longer. Some believe that an Areopagus address would have taken hours. But Paul presents God as the creator. God as the creator, not just kind of an infinite universe, but a starting point. And sometimes pre-evangelism is necessary. It's a good and logical place to start that you and I have been created in the image of God. Then he says God is all-present. God is self-sufficient. God is the ruler of all nations. God is knowable. God is our maker. He is our sustainer. God is the judge. And Jesus is God and Savior. You know, it doesn't take long. Paul ultimately takes them to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, may I say that all religions are not the same. And that is evidenced that God is alive by the resurrection. All men must repent because Jesus is the risen Lord. Paul always focused on this doctrine, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He would pin the words to the Corinthians, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He made a big deal about the resurrection and he urged people to repent. So what was the response of this? Well, it happens pretty quick. Mockery, belief, and then the request to hear more later. Some made fun of him for mentioning the resurrection of Jesus. Some, a few, believed, and a few said, you know what, we'll hear more about this later. You know, compared to some of the other stories that we've looked at in the book of Acts, it's easy to step away from this one and think that Paul had a pretty rough time. We don't read of the thousands coming to faith as we do in the other stories of Acts. There's no great revival that takes place here in Athens, it seems, and the story just sort of abruptly ends, and then... We move on to the next section of Paul in Corinth. But we know this, Paul did well because he was faithful to the Holy Spirit of God. And his faithfulness should be an encouragement to us and an inspiration to us. We sow the seeds and sometimes they fall on good ground and God will make it grow. We've talked about Paul's methods, but it's also apparent to me that the way he was interacting shows a love for these people. He saw who they were, saw who they were, warts and all, and he loved them despite that. Paul's feeling was for the glory of God, and he had a broken-hearted compassion for them. He doesn't come in and bulldoze down their temples or smash idols on the ground or call them derogatory names while insulting their intelligence. He loved them. He knew they were lost, and then he acted for the glory of God. You know, sharing the gospel is certainly about speaking truth into people's lives and helping them understand their need for Jesus and what Jesus did. But it also involves listening to people, answering their questions, and addressing their concerns patiently. We need Paul's mind, we need Paul's heart, and we need his action. You know, he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He literally writes this at one point in his letters, and here he demonstrates it. You know, I have no reservations about the message of Christ going up against any accusations or other worldviews, because in the free marketplace of ideas, I believe the truth eventually emerges victorious, but we have to be willing and able to communicate it effectively. There's a sweet story I read some time ago that kind of drives this point home. There was a New England farmer that lived a long time ago in the 1700s. His name was Mr. Short. And sometime in the middle of the 1700s, he was sitting in his fields reflecting on his long life. And as he did, he recalled a sermon that he had heard when he was 15 years old as a boy in Dartmouth, England, before he sailed to America. And as he sat there all alone in that vast New England field, the horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed upon him as he meditated on the words that he had heard so long ago with a preacher by the name of John Flavel. And in that field, all alone, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. But you know that preacher, John Flavel, who had preached that message about 85 years earlier, never lived to see the fruit of his faithfulness on earth but a message from one of his sermons 85 years ago pierced the heart of this farmer and friends i believe that through god's holy spirit we're still messengers of this great truth today whether we're in our homes or the great metropolises of the world like paul found him in today found himself in today thank you for giving me a hearing this morning if you would join me in prayer our heavenly father god paul said In his message to the Athenians here that the age of ignorance was over. And God, certainly we're grateful that we don't have to be ignorant of who you are or where you are or what you are. But God, you've given us your word and we know that you are knowable. That you are our closest friend, our dearest comforter, our heavenly father. And that God wants to have a relationship with us so much so that you seek us out and you call us to repentance and salvation and you have made a way through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, in our own culture, there are so many parallels to the city of Athens, so many wrong thoughts, so many confused people. But Lord, we we pray that you would help the truth, your truth, the only truth, go out into this country, go out into this community, go out into this world, and that it would emerge victorious as you call people to salvation. God, please bless this church. And bless the kingdom of God for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.